0: Hi, I'm James. And I'm Anthony.
1: And this is Words and Numbers, presented by FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. So what's new and exciting in your world this weekend?
0: I want to give a shout out to one of our new listeners, Jody Bowman. Jody's a friend of a friend of a friend who ran across the podcast and occasionally writes to say that she enjoys the show and that she likes me better than she likes you.
1: Yeah, well, she hasn't met me yet.
0: (laughs) She really will like me better than she likes you.
1: On that point, Aunt, I find it hard to believe that a friend of a friend of a friend could be listening, because I'm pretty sure you don't have any friends in the first place.
0: (laughs) All it takes is one, James. One friend. Uh, Yeah, and your
1: mother keeps sending the checks to me, so I'm (laughs) guessing I'm your friend.
0: (laughs) Some time ago, we reported on an idea to bring internet access to remote areas by using balloons in place of cell phone towers.
1: That's a pretty cool idea.
0: It was a cool idea. It turns out Google is bringing the idea to Kenya, where it is deploying a fleet of 35 balloons that will broadcast 4G signal over 20,000 square miles. That's an area roughly between the sizes of Maryland and West Virginia. It's popular among some to disparage companies like Google that make billions of dollars— But examples like this remind us that one reason companies make billions of dollars is because they're constantly on the lookout for how they can bring people things people want at prices they're willing to pay. When companies are free to do this, people's quality of life increases. This has happened to such a phenomenal degree in developed countries that we've come to expect as near universal rights, things that just a century ago only the ultra-rich could enjoy—electricity, running water, air conditioning, telephones, refrigeration, dishwashers, cars, air travel, and thousands of other things. But it's important to note that there's another way that companies can make billions, that is to co-opt the government to restrict competition and to force people to buy their products— The moral of the story is that when you see a company that is worth billions of dollars, your first thoughts shouldn't go to inequality and plunder, but rather to the question, how did the company acquire those billions? If it was through coercion and governmental force, then those billions are a sign of something gone very wrong. But if the company acquired them through cooperation and voluntary exchange, then those billions are a sign that the company has done something very good.
1: And look where we are here. We're talking about internet beamed into a country by balloon. By balloon. This is, this is crazy <laughs> business. And, and I'm sure you remember because I do, and you're like, what, 20 years older than I am. <laughs> I remember when internet access was too expensive and I couldn't have it. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember this. This is in my lifetime. And then I remember when I finally could afford it. Of course, we were all on dial-up. I could only use it at night after everybody in my house went to bed. That's right. Because you would tie up the telephone line. And oh, by the way, there used to be these things called telephones. So the, the sea change that we see here, moving from unaffordable here in the rich United States to something that's being delivered in poverty ridden countries by balloon, functionally free, is really astonishing.
0: It really is. It causes me to look with skepticism on claims of inequality. I mean, of course, we have people in the developed countries that are richer than people in the lesser developed countries. But if you take a broader perspective, wealth is increasing across the board and people who are poor today are not going
1: to be poor tomorrow. We haven't dug through the numbers on this, so I'm shooting from the hip here. But I really think that cases of war-torn nations aside, everybody is doing better now than they were 10 years ago. It's certainly not true of places that have armed conflict, but I think it is true of literally everywhere else.
0: I put aside as well places, and it's kind of like armed conflict, where the government has locked down on the people, Venezuela comes to mind. Generally, when we leave people alone to do their own thing, they make the world a better place.
1: Yeah, they do these phenomenal things, come to find out, things you couldn't even imagine they might do. Right. I'm going to keep us on Google here, Aunt, because believe it or not, The thing that caught my eye this week was a headline, Google to keep workers at home through July 2021. July 2020, a year from now. So Google thinks or has asserted that its workers will be in their homes for another complete year.
0: Well, that just becomes permanent then. I mean, how do you get workers back into the office after that?
1: I suspect that's right. I think this brings some challenges, right? So you're gonna hear a a lot of ruminating about the work-life balance that we were already ruminating about given the proliferation of cell phones and how we could be interrupted at dinner by an email. I also think you're going to see some discussion on the possibility of efficiency from at-home workers because I suspect that we have a honeymoon period right now and we've learned that you can actually get a fair amount of work out of people wherever they happen to be, which has the added benefit of allowing people to live wherever they want to live which makes them happier and more well-adjusted and more efficient at their job. And yet we're starting to see a backlash. People are openly wondering now if the work-at-home regime is desirable over the long term. I don't pretend to know what the answer to that question is, but it is going to be interesting watching it all play out. The next year is going to be very, very important in figuring out what work looks like for human beings moving forward.
0: I've been working largely at home for almost 10 years, and I could tell you, it's probably the case with you as well, that my work life has completely spilled over into my home life.
1: Yeah, I don't recognize the difference between work and home. Yeah, there isn't a difference. That's probably unfortunate. I don't mind telling the nice people who are listening that you and I probably work 70 to 100 hours a week. It's going to be at home. It couldn't be in an office. Not enough hours in a week to be in an office like that. But I do suspect we're going to get some weird results. Something's going to happen that none of us could have expected. And that's going to be what we're talking about a year from now. But it's going to be weird. And weird, of course, heralds, Anthony, the foolishness of the week.
0: What's foolish this week, James?
1: This is going to confuse you on so many levels that I barely know how to do. <laughs> you might have heard of a beautiful game, a game that I love very much, called football. You've heard of it, right? That's the weird-shaped ball. That is correct. It's the weird-shaped ball. There is a football team around Washington, D.C. that you might have heard of. They were previously known as the Washington Redskins.
0: Yeah, the Nationals.
1: No, you idiot. That's a baseball team. <laughs> I just said Redskins. Pay attention.
0: You said previously known as the Redskins.
1: Yeah, previously known as the Redskins, uh, because as of this week, they have changed their name. So you see them buckling to the sort of criticism that would have everybody think twice about using anything that's perhaps racial in any way, shape, or form. And just to be perfectly out in the open on this one, I think it's probably time for the Redskins name to go away. It's a reminder of a day when we didn't really care about each other as much as we do. And there's a lot of nonsense and name-calling and mudslinging that goes along with this. You can make a differentiation, right, with the hockey team, the Blackhawks, who were named after Blackhawk. It's actually an homage. Redskins pretty clearly never was. In this time of the cranky national conversation about race, the Washington Redskins finally declared they have a new name. And the new name is the Washington football team.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They're going to have like a black and white generic logo.
1: (laughs) They're keeping the same team colors, but the name will now be the Washington football team, which is just beyond stupid. Now, somebody said maybe it's just a year and then we'll have a real name. But come on, what are you doing? There were a million things you could have been if you wanted to borrow a team name from baseball that's no longer being used. The Washington Senators is out there. Personally, I like the Washington Agents, so we all think about the IRS every time they take the field. There were options. They just decided they didn't care. They're going to be the Washington football team. It's as if they put their thumb on their nose to everybody who (laughs) was prevailing upon them not to be the Redskins anymore and said, "Okay, we'll choose something even dumber.
0: I wonder how much they paid someone to come up with that.
1: God, Focus groups that yielded that outcome are perfect illustrations of why democracy has such trouble working. (laughs) But here we are. And I look forward to rooting against them because anything that comes from Washington, D.C. is on my not to cheer for list.
0: This week, Clark Neely joins us. Clark is vice president of criminal justice at the Cato Institute. His areas of interest include constitutional law, over-criminalization, civil forfeiture, police accountability, and gun rights. Clark is author of Terms of Engagement, How Our Courts Should Enforce the Constitution's Promise of Limited Government. Clark,
1: welcome back to Words and Numbers. Thank you. Good to be back. Clark, it's almost like we've got you on retainer at this point.
0: (laughs) I know, it's wonderful.
1: (laughs) You're like our official attorney for whatever nefarious things we're going to get into. I guess today does count as a nefarious thing, right? We're getting all kinds of reports, Clark, out of Portland right now about what we might
2: call federal goon squads. Yeah, I think that would be accurate. Do you have any sense of what's happening there at this point? Well, I have a theory. We have a president who is disastrously far behind in the polls, who doesn't really have any program to propose for a second term. And he's playing to what he perceives to be his strengths, which is to portray himself as a strong executive and law and order president. There is uh, indisputably unrest going on in Portland, Oregon, as there is in some other cities. And as a president who I think sort of views himself as largely unconstrained by constitutional limits or institutional norms, he's decided that what he'll do is deliver the people of Portland, Oregon from their oppressors, namely this rabble, as he sees it, by flooding the zone with federal law enforcement officers who will be personally deputized by President Trump to go and do good. Let's maybe take a
1: gigantic step back. I want to think about federal law enforcement, broadly construed. So we've got the FBI, the CIA, the Secret Service, the Park Police. What am I missing?
2: Well, you're missing about 65 federal agencies that have the authority to arrest people. You also included the CIA, which is not a domestic law enforcement agency, but there are about 70 federal law enforcement agencies with the power to arrest. But as I'm sure we're about to get into, that power is, at least in theory, significantly constrained as compared to local law enforcement agencies.
1: As I often do. I mean, you know that I'm an originalist, more or less, on almost everything. I see no authority in the Constitution for a federal police force simply.
2: No, there's not only the states have what's called the general police power, which is not limited to what we think of as the police. It's more of a political or political science term that connotes the sort of residual authority that states have to essentially try to create a stable and peaceful environment in which people can go about their business. That is something that state governments possess, and it is emphatically something that the federal government does not possess precisely because the founders chose to withhold it from the federal government.
1: I think any of them, literally any of them, would be horrified at the amount of interaction we have at the federal level in terms of law enforcement.
2: Oh, there's not the slightest question. And in fact, I think that the founders would be rather dismayed to see what's going on now because I think they went to considerable lengths not only to design a constitution that would withhold from the federal government the kinds of powers we are now seeing exercised, but perhaps equally significant, they reassured the opponents of the proposed constitution, the anti-federalists, that exactly what we are seeing today could never happen because of the clever design that they had built into the constitution. So I think they'd be pretty despondent.
1: And as Madison says, parchment barriers are not going to be enough, and yet parchment barriers are what we got in the end. Clark, can you tell us
0: how out of the ordinary is this? In the past, presidents have called out the National Guard to do various things within states, typically in times of emergency. This
2: is not that. Correct. There is something completely mundane in what we're seeing and something highly alarming. And I'll try to see if I can bring those two statements together. If you were to grow the wrong plant in your backyard... It's a very real possibility that you would be the subject of an extremely vigorous federal law enforcement response akin to the one that we're seeing now. In other words, for at least the last 50 years, the federal government has taken the position that it has the authority to enforce drug prohibition laws with regard to virtually any activity you can think of, no matter how purely local, including simply the act of growing a plant in your backyard if it's the wrong plant. And we know, for example, in 2005, in the Gonzalez v. Reyes case, that the Supreme Court engaged in some real mental gymnastics to uphold the authority of the federal government to criminalize that act, literally just growing the wrong kind of plant in your backyard. That table was set many years ago. In fact, that table was set in the mid-1940s when the Supreme Court essentially threw in the towel on limiting the exercise of federal powers in any meaningful way. And all that was left, really, at that point was for a chief executive who was willing to dispense with the institutional norms that restrained the president from treating federal law enforcement agencies as a general federal police force that he could deploy wherever he wants to for whatever reason he wants to. And now we have a president that doesn't care particularly for those kinds of norms, and we're seeing the president exercise powers that the Constitution forbids to him, but that the Supreme Court is nevertheless authorized. So the only thing standing in his way is Congress. Is that correct? I'm not sure I would agree with your major premise, but if there is anything in standing in his way, it would seem to be Congress— In terms of maybe the legislative branch dialing back some of the authorities that it has granted to the executive when it comes to deploying federal law enforcement agents. By the way, there should be another branch that stands between the president and the people of Portland, Oregon. That's the judiciary, but it also threw in the towel many years ago. And as I pointed out on Twitter the other day... A judiciary that embraces pretextual justifications for the exercise of government power, which the Supreme Court does, that invents out of whole cloth government-favoring doctrines like qualified immunity, which we have discussed before, and that finds in the federal constitution the authority to criminalize the cultivation of a plant in your backyard is an extraordinarily threadbare safety net. When you have a president like this one who chooses to use federal law enforcement agencies as a general police force to deploy wherever he wants to and for whatever reason he wants to, do not look to the judiciary to bail us out of this one, even though they are the branch that should be the last safety line for bailing us out. They won't do it.
1: We've never done an episode on the Anti-Federalist, although the more I think about it right now, I think maybe we should. But we did do an episode, it must have been a year or so ago, that centered on Wickard v. Filburn. I think that's the case you're referencing here. Why don't you explain that? Because I think most people's heads would explode if they knew the backflips and the somersaults that the justices had to do to get this
2: where they wanted it. Right. Yeah, they would. I mean, I hope they would. The basic design of the federal government in the Constitution is that it's a government that was created. It didn't exist before the ratification of the Constitution. It was created, and therefore we got to define what its powers are. We get to delegate to the federal government its powers the framers of the Constitution went to some lengths to make clear that the federal government that they were proposing to create, and that would be created by the ratification of the Constitution, be one of delegated and therefore limited powers. And they are all described in Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution, which you can read in about 30 seconds. They include things like the authority to operate a post office and to build post roads and to have an army and navy and etc. What happened in Wicker? was, was sort of the culmination of this effort on the part of the federal government to micromanage the national economy in an effort to drag us out of the Great Depression. This was colloquially referred to as the New Deal. And essentially what it boiled down to was a conviction on the part of a number of politicians that a bunch of bureaucrats in Washington had enough information and good intentions to essentially set production quotas and prices and other aspects of the economy to get everything functioning just right. And one of the conceits that they had was that somewhere in Washington, D.C. was a bureaucrat who knew the exact correct amount of wheat for the farmers of America to grow. And so every wheat farmer in America, including an Ohio farmer named Roscoe Philburn, got a quota of the amount of wheat they could grow every year that was the right amount of wheat for that farm to produce. And wouldn't you know it, old Roscoe decided that he would ignore that order from Washington, D.C. and grow as much wheat as he pleased, which he then used to feed primarily his livestock, but also may have made some bread for his family. What happened then was that federal bureaucrats descended upon him from Washington, D.C., charged him with violating federal law by growing more wheat than the bureaucrats in Washington had authorized. And When it got to the Supreme Court, the question was, in essence, does the Constitution confer upon the federal government the authority to dictate to farmers who do not sell their wheat in interstate commerce? In other words, he was not participating in commerce. He was keeping all of his wheat for his own on-the-farm uses. Can Congress reach that activity under what had come to be their preferred sort of constitutional wild card, which was the power in Article I, Section 8 to regulate commerce among the states? The problem, of course, is that in the Wickard case, there was no commerce among the states. He wasn't selling this wheat, and he certainly wasn't selling it to anybody in another state. And what the Supreme Court did was it bent over backwards, and it came up with something called the aggregation doctrine. And what that means very simply is that if you aggregate the conduct of this particular individual across all farms in the United States, could you say that that would have an effect on the interstate wheat market. In other words, if all of the farmers in America withheld their production from the interstate wheat market, could that be seen as having an effect on interstate commerce? And the answer of course was yes, because there's not a single human activity under the sun that when sufficiently aggregated would not have plausibly an effect on commerce. And that became the hook that the federal government used to regulate the growing of wheat. I should say the purely local and non-commercial growing of wheat, on a farm in Ohio, and at that point, of course, it was Annie bar the door, and there have only been two, or arguably three, depending on how you count, exercises of federal power since then. That was 1942. So in the last 80 years, there have only been two exercises, or arguably three, federal power that have ever flunked that test, this sort of aggregation test for interstate commerce. And and basically, Congress gets to do almost anything except basically prohibit you from having a gun within a 1,000 feet of a school, although they can do that now if the gun itself moved into interstate commerce. It's been a disaster.
1: All right. So, Clark, if I'm hearing you correctly, you just laid waste to any hope that we might have that the judiciary would help us out here in securing our rights. You already had, I think, stuck a knife into the executive branch. And if I heard you correctly, you concluded that the Congress is probably not the body to look to if you would like to do better than we now do. So it sounds like you're telling us that things are quite hopeless. Yeah, it's actually
2: worse than you depicted just now. (laughs) Uh, Believe it or not, it is. Because the Supreme Court has another little trick up its sleeve. Besides engaging in these kind of ridiculous flights of economic fancy by aggregating conduct, the other thing about the court that you need to understand is that they are very enthusiastic supporters of pretextual justifications for government power. So that's a really problematic sort of dyad here. In other words... It interacts with the overall failure to enforce federal limits on government power because there are some things that federal law enforcement is permitted to do, and I'll give you one example, which is the one they claim they're operating under, which is to protect federal operations and federal property. So in other words, the rationale for deploying most of these officers, or I should say agents to Portland, is to protect the federal courthouse and ensure that it can keep on doing business. Now, I think rather clearly, at least some of these federal agents are doing a lot more than that. They're primarily there, in my opinion, for pacification, essentially, to disband what are being described as rioters. Of course, the difference between a protester and a rioter maybe sometimes in the eye of the beholder. But the problem, or one of many problems here, is that the Supreme Court for decades has not only endorsed, but even kind of urged the government to offer purely pretextual justifications for the exercise of various powers. And that really lights a fuse here, right? Because if you've got a bunch of federal agents on the ground in Portland, Oregon, and a judiciary that says, hey, as long as you assert that you're down there to protect a courthouse, a federal courthouse, don't worry, we won't take too hard a look at what you're actually doing there. That is precisely the message that the judiciary has sent to both state and federal governments. Now, will they be consistent in sending that message here? I'm not sure. They might take a second look at where public opinion is going, but in general, The government is not only permitted, but encouraged by the judiciary to offer purely pretextual justifications for its exercise of unconstitutional powers.
1: That's rough. And I think we could actually render what you just said in everyday English just by saying most people think of the United States government in terms of separation of powers. However, at the end of the day, the body that decides whether an act is or is not constitutional is part of the federal government, and not surprisingly, it consistently finds in favor of the federal government.
2: I think that's exactly right, and let me just give you an example of a case that really supports what I'm saying here. There was a case called United States v. Ren, and it's just a simple traffic stop in Washington, D.C. What's 100% clear about this case is that the officers involved were racially profiling. They pulled over the defendant in this case because he was a young black man driving a car in a particular part of Washington, D.C. But what they asserted in court was that they were pulling him over for making an unsignaled right turn and that he rolled through the stop sign. Now, it may be that both things are true. It may be that he, in fact, did roll through the stop sign, but it's also true that they would not have pulled him over except for the fact that they were suspicious of him because of his race. How do we know that? Because they were all working undercover on a squad that was forbidden from enforcing traffic laws. And they went into court and said, we pulled him over for rolling through a stop sign even though we were forbidden by our own department from engaging in traffic enforcement, it could not be more clear why they pulled him over. They pulled him over for being a young black man in the wrong neighborhood. And the Supreme Court said, you know what? If you're prepared to come into court and say traffic infraction, even though we all know that it was racial profiling, if it's plausible that a traffic infraction actually happened, we are not going to ask why you actually made this stop. And once you have a judiciary that's prepared to accept blatantly pretextual justifications like that, there is no more constitution, at least in any meaningful sense of the word, because the government will always be able to come up with a pretext like we were just trying to protect the federal courthouse when we were eight blocks away taking the stick to a bunch of protesters.
1: So where does that leave us with Portland? And then maybe put on your thinking cap and give an opinion on whether we're likely to see what's happening in Portland in other American cities very soon.
2: So three responses, I would say. This is a very gray area. And so even though there have been a number of lawsuits that have been filed the idea or the proposition that the federal judiciary will step in in a big way and essentially tell the federal government to get out of Portland I think is quite slim. Maybe if they will find that some of the discrete operations that we've been seeing are not permissible but I wouldn't expect any kind of a robust response from the federal judiciary in Portland. I think there's a very real risk that Trump will be kind of encouraged by that and that he may then deploy federal law enforcement against peaceful protesters in other cities as sort of a nakedly political attempt to suppress dissent. If we see that, and if it's blatant enough, then it's possible that the federal judiciary will get involved in a more substantive way. Because one thing to keep in mind about judges is they do always have one eye on popular opinion. You might not think it, but they do. And I don't think that the federal judiciary would allow itself to become complicit in a blatant attempt to suppress political dissent using arguably unconstitutional federal law enforcement agents, or using them in an arguably unconstitutional way. Would I bet a lot of money that the federal judiciary would step in and prevent that? Not a lot, but I think it's probably an even money proposition if the act of suppression were blatant enough, and if it was clear that it was just a political ploy on the part of the president, then you might arouse the interest of the judiciary. What are the
0: governors doing and what could they do
2: here? Taken from one perspective, you could imagine the
0: governor not being happy with the protesters and this simply provides him political cover that he can blame Trump for breaking up the thing that he would have liked to break up himself. But the other way to look at it is the governor could gain some significant support amongst the people by deploying the state police forces and saying, okay, federal agents, you are allowed to work within these certain boundaries of federal property or
2: what have you, but you're not stepping outside that. It's a really interesting question, and I hope we don't find out who wins that game of constitutional chicken. I believe there were some incidents, and you guys may have discussed this already, where governors deployed state law enforcement officers to protect the receipt of COVID-19-related supplies. There were some incidents where the federal officials had essentially tried to interdict flights full of medical equipment that states had ordered. I think there was at least one incident where a governor had state police, and I want to say it was Massachusetts, essentially had state police surround a plane so that federal officials could not interfere with the transfer of that medical equipment to state health authorities. The federal government chose not to push that. I think if there were a serious effort by the governor of a state to limit the scope of activity of federal law enforcement agents on the ground, the feds would push it. And in all likelihood, they would win. And that would be a very ugly and dangerous thing to see. And I really hope it doesn't come to that. We do have peaceful mechanisms for resolving those sorts of conflicts. They are not entirely satisfactory, but they are much more satisfactory than the prospect of armed conflict between state law enforcement agents and federal agents. We never want to see that.
1: People often talk about whether we're on the precipice of a second civil war, and I think that's largely a silly thing to talk about. But in this one instance, it's an alarming thing to talk about.
2: It is, and I really hope that we can turn away from that path. I think it's not inconceivable that we continue down that path But I think that President Trump may have one last partially redeeming gift that he can give the country, and that is to lose the upcoming presidential election by the widest popular margin in the history of the country. I think that's a real possibility, and I think it would be an incredible gift, because it would enable his successor, whoever that is, to assert credibly that there had been a popular repudiation of a number of things that we've seen, including, hopefully, the use of federal law enforcement agents to suppress dissent, I don't argue that the only thing going on in Portland is dissent. You'd be a fool to say so. There's certainly a significant amount of actual rioting. But if you think that's the only reason why law enforcement officers are there, I disagree.
1: Clark, I think the possibility of a pretty wide win for the Democrats, I think that's very, very plausible at this point. I don't think it's a slam dunk. Any number of things can happen between now and then. But as things sit right this second, that's where I would put my money. The sad thing is, is I have no faith whatsoever in the Democratic Party. It seems like everybody's in cahoots on these sorts of questions.
2: I think that's right. This has been a kind of a scary incident. At least it has been for me. And I hope that a sort of sudden and very unambiguous transfer of power at the behest of a significant majority of people in this country might help all of us pull back from the precipice a bit a big city that fails to immediately shut down a violent protest on the one hand, and the prospect of a bunch of federal goons flooding the zone, grabbing people off the street while wearing these generic insignia-less battle jammies and stuffing them into minivans and taking them to an undisclosed location without any explanation of their authority or willingness to identify themselves, that's a nightmare scenario right there. Unfortunately, our friends on the right, who would normally be up in arms about that and be talking about sort of organizing militias to prevent that from happening, are sitting on the sidelines because they happen to really hate the people to whom it is being done. But I think you're exactly right. Once it becomes sort of more clear to them that the shoe could soon be on the other foot, maybe they will regain their perspective.
1: It's shocking to me, and it's been shocking to me for a long time, that political actors don't seem to realize that when your preferred bastard is meting out your preferred kind of justice to people you hate, you're just a couple of years off from all of that being reversed. And they seem to forget it every single time.
2: I think we've had a significant breakdown in a number of constitutional mechanisms that were designed to prevent us from coming to this kind of pass. But I do think that the institutions have been remarkably resilient, not perfect necessarily, But I remain hopeful that there are some officials, even within the Trump administration, who would refuse a direct order, for example, to deploy federal agents for the express purpose of shutting down a peaceful protest. I'm not positive that they would refuse that order, but I'm also not willing to rule it out. I think it would be an extraordinarily noble thing for one of them to do. Yeah,
1: I do too. And the way you just summarized the state of affairs should have literate people who understand history saying things like, we have the secret police now. We have the Stasi here in the place that was held up as the shining example of the one place on the planet that would never go that way. Well, it's gone that way. I don't know what to say about that. It's horrifying.
2: It is. I think that's a fair description. I actually looked up the definition of secret police and. Actually, what's happening in Portland seems to fit that definition perfectly. You have a bunch of people who refuse to identify themselves or even their affiliation, exercising power, but without explaining to people why they're being picked up or where they're being taken or what's going to happen to them. And then they seem to exert unilateral discretion about whether to hold you or let you go. And you never find out why you were picked up or who to complain to if you have an objection to it. I defy anybody to tell me the difference between that and sort of an old-style communist secret policeman because I studied that regime closely and that's exactly how those guys operated and those were the defining characteristics of an Eastern Bloc secret policeman.
1: This has been, as is often the case when you come to visit, a brutalization of my hopes and dreams. Clark, give us something positive to end with. Right. Maybe there's some pie in the sky sort of thing that
2: you can say now that we could all feel good about. All right. I will do my best because it's, it's not a very optimistic situation. But I will say that maybe what happens is if Trump is voted out of office and we get, you know, a new administration, a lot of people who kind of went along with this in the moment might wake up with a constitutional hangover in January and feel like it's incumbent upon them to disavow that which they were either actively or passively participating in back when their guy was in charge. And regardless of whether they're sincere or performative, the mere fact of a lot of people who are in significant positions of power renouncing and denouncing what we are experiencing today, I think is very plausible. I think we could see it. And I think will be very healthy for the country. So, Maybe we'll be somewhere better than this in a few months. And the current people who are supporting some of this activity suddenly waking up and realizing they need to repudiate it in order to be members of good standing in a liberal democracy is not impossible to conceive. Thank you.
1: Clark, thanks for stopping by. As always, we'll see you soon. Thanks, guys. That's all the time we've got this week on Words and Numbers. Be sure to join us next week when we have even more fascinating things. Until then, follow us on Twitter. The handles are in the show notes. Send us email. No. Words and Numbers podcast at gmail.com. Don't send email. Do not send Send email. Send lots
0: of email. God.
1: And join the Words and Numbers backstage Facebook group. You should all join if you haven't. It's actually fun.
0: Find us on Patreon where you can donate to our habit of making podcasts. Our habit of
1: making podcasts. And... For crying out loud, just be nice to each other. It doesn't take much. Please just try it for a week. Get back to us. Have a great week. See you next week, James.